The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the passage we will come to is Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray this morning. Lord, what a blessing it is that we get to come now before your word. And we come with the desire, God, that we would hear from you. Lord, we've heard the words of this text, Lord. Now, we pray that you would help those words to find a place in our hearts. Lord, give us a fuller understanding of what's being said in this passage, of the way it connects to our lives. Lord, would you change us and shape us Oh, God, that we might know you and be conformed to your image. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have full rule and reign among us this morning, Lord. We give ourselves to you. Do as you see fit in our lives, Lord. Nothing's off limits. Have your way with each person here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the most difficult things to see in uh, our city is churches closing their doors for good. Uh, Some churches have been turned into restaurants. 
others into concert halls, and many of them into apartments. And it's not just Catholic churches either. It's churches of all different kinds. It seems like every year we hear about several churches, even in this area, closing down. Yet here in Acts 11, we read about a church that was thriving, the church of Antioch. In verse 21, it records how as the gospel was first preached in Antioch, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So people turned to Jesus in great numbers. The same thing is then repeated in verse 24, where speaking of Barnabas' ministry in Antioch, it states, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then yet again, in verse 26, we find reference to the significant numbers of people being ministered to in Antioch. It says of both Barnabas and Saul that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. So you can see that this is a theme that runs throughout this passage. Great numbers of people were turning to the Lord and being discipled. Like this is a picture of a thriving church. And that's the main idea of this passage, that God established a thriving church in Antioch. God established a thriving church in Antioch. And keep in mind that Antioch was a thoroughly pagan city. You know, I mentioned a moment ago that many churches in Pittsburgh have closed their doors, and sometimes you might hear someone say that the reason so many churches are closing down is because of society. American society is turning away from God, and that supposedly results in churches closing. But here in Acts 11, we see a thriving church being started right in the middle of a thoroughly pagan city. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was behind only Rome itself and Alexandria. And by all accounts, it was a, a vile place. I mean, it was full of uh, sexual immorality and pagan worship and a whole bunch of vile things. And yet in the midst of this vile city was a thriving church. You know what that tells me? That tells me it doesn't matter how godless society is. Regardless of how much a society turns away from God, it's still possible to have a thriving church. And that therefore, most of the churches that close their doors do so because of internal dynamics rather than external circumstances. Not all, but most. So then, how can we make sure that that doesn't happen to our church? Right? What's the secret to having a thriving church? How can we have a thriving church like in Antioch, and even in the midst of an increasingly pagan city, we might say? Well, as we go through this passage, we're going to see four essentials of a thriving church. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now that it's not what many people might assume, especially the, the so-called church growth experts these days, right? It's not about uh, being really clever or creative or innovative in our ministry. Instead, it's about these four things. First, so-called ordinary Christians 
being faithful to their missionary calling. That's the first essential characteristic of a thriving church that we see here. Ordinary Christians being faithful to their missionary calling. And verse 19 tells us that the church of Antioch was started as a result of uh, the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now that's a reference to Acts chapters 7 and 8. Acts 7 records how a well-known Christian named Stephen uh, proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem and was brutally murdered for it by an angry mob. We then read in Acts 8 how that event marked the beginning of a significant persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. Acts 8.1 describes it like this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We then read down in Acts 8.4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the Christians who fled Jerusalem went to all the surrounding regions and took the gospel with them wherever they went. And one of those places was Antioch. And returning again to our main passage, we read in Acts 11, 19, and 20, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So even though some of the Christians who were scattered only preached the, the gospel with, to the Jews, others, it says men of Cyprus and Cyrene, shared it also with non-Jews, called Hellenists in this text, and more commonly simply known as Gentiles. Now, these Christians who, who were doing this probably didn't know about what we saw back in Acts 10 a few weeks ago, how Peter had shared the gospel with a Gentile named Cornelius, and God had made it very clear, first to Peter and eventually to the entire Jerusalem church, that the gospel is meant not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Right? That was the lesson from, from the events surrounding Cornelius, and that was a big deal. It was a radical shift in thinking for many Jewish Christians. But these Christians here in verse 19 apparently were thinking that way already. Now, since they had fled Jerusalem before the events of Acts 10 took place, they probably didn't know about what had happened with Cornelius, and yet they still shared the gospel with Gentiles. And likely because they themselves were from uh, pr predominantly Gentile areas like Cyprus and Cyrene and were Therefore, more open to ministering to Gentiles. And we see here in this passage how God just blessed their efforts in an incredible way and used them to start a thriving church in Antioch. And again, the notable thing here is that the people who started this church in Antioch were what we might call ordinary Christians, meaning that they weren't official leaders of the church. We were just church members who understood and wanted to be faithful to the missionary calling that Jesus has given to every single Christian. You know, a lot of people somehow have this idea that sharing the gospel is something best left to the professionals. 
right? It's kind of like one of those car commercials you've probably seen where there, there's a, a nice car or truck and, and the commercial pictures, that vehicle performing all these fancy high-speed maneuvers. And what do they always put in fine print down there at the bottom of the screen? Professional driver, do not attempt, right? And a lot of people, that, that's the way a lot of people view sharing the gospel as well. That it's something best reserved for this elite group of special Christians, like pastors and other church leaders. Yet we see the opposite taking place here in verse 19, don't we? Acts 8 specifically told us, if you remember, that it wasn't the church leaders who were scattered, but rather the ordinary Christians. Acts 8 once stated that all of the Christians were scattered, and it specified, except the apostles, except the leaders. And yet, thankfully, these Christians understood that Jesus calls every Christian to be a missionary regardless of where they happen to be. And the result of that, as we see in Acts 11, is that the church of Antioch is born. So let me encourage those of you who are Christians to be faithful to your missionary call. You can start simply by opening your eyes to what's around you. God has you where you are for a reason, right? Notice that these Christians in Acts 11 didn't go to Antioch specifically with the plan of starting a church there. They were just fleeing persecution, remember? And yet, as the saying goes, they bloomed where they were planted. Similarly, open your eyes and, and just take a look at where God has sovereignly planted you. Guys, there isn't one person in your life who's there by accident. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, God has sovereignly brought them to you and you to them for a purpose. He wants you to be a missionary and those people to be your mission field. You know, one of the things my family's doing, just personally, to try to be faithful to our missionary calling this Christmas season is that we're having a, a Christmas party at our house, a party that's uh, very deliberately oriented toward people who might not yet be Christians. Uh, now, of course, we are inviting a few Christians as well. It's not totally non-Christians, but uh, that's our focus. Is, uh, I went out last weekend. Um, my wife, Becky, spent a lot of time making some very nice cookies, a variety of different cookies, and we put those things in containers, and I went around down my street just um, knocking on doors and inviting um, many of the people we knew already. Many were new to the street, and uh, we just invited the neighborhood. Uh, we also invited a few other non-Christians that we already knew and had relationships with. And our purpose in, in doing this, our hope, is that this Christmas party would help us just build those relationships and build those friendships more uh, so that perhaps we might eventually get an opportunity to have a gospel conversation with a lot of these folks. We do plan on inviting them to our Christmas Eve service, and maybe we'll be able to do an evangelistic Bible study later in the winter. Now, here's the thing I want you to see from that. Everything I've just described 
you don't have to go to seminary to do that. All right? Anybody in this room, any Christian in this room is able to do the kind of thing that I just described. Maybe it's not even a huge Christmas party. Maybe it's as simple as inviting someone over to your house for dinner. It could be the simplest thing, but every Christian is able to build relationships with those who might not yet be Christians with the hope and, and prayerfully asking God to open doors for the gospel. And not only are we able to do that, we could even go further and say we're called, even commanded to do that as we uh, are reminded every single Sunday at the conclusion of our worship service when we recite the Great Commission together. Then second, not only did the church of Antioch feature ordinary Christians being faithful to their missionary calling, but it also featured ministry efforts that were centered on the gospel. That's the second essential of a thriving church. Ministry efforts that are centered on the gospel. Verse 20 summarizes the ministry activity of these Christians who found themselves in Antioch in a very concise yet informative way. It says that they came into town preaching the Lord Jesus. It's as simple as that. They moved in and started preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the term Lord is more literally translated as master, as in someone who is a master over slaves. And so to refer to Jesus as Lord is really a statement that Jesus rules over this universe in an absolute sense. Like he is master of the universe. Colossians 1.16 states that by him all things were created. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And John 5.22 states that the Father judges no one, but has entrusted or given all judgment to the Son. So in every sense, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He's creator, sustainer, and judge. And that, of course, requires that he be divine. Although he's a distinct person, he's nevertheless of the same essence as God the Father. And not only is he referred to as Lord here, but he's also referred to by his earthly name, Jesus. This comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua and means he saves. So the ministry of Jesus is literally spelled out in the name of Jesus. And the natural question, of course, is what does he save us from? And the resounding answer found throughout both the Old and New Testaments is that he saves us from our sin. The Bible is very clear that every single person in this world has sinned against God. Right? We have done what He forbids and failed to do what He commands. And the problem goes right down to our hearts. It's not just a surface level behavior issue, but a deeper level heart issue. Our hearts are in a state of rebellion against God. And it's so pervasive that there's no way we can ever fix ourselves. We can't change our sinful hearts. 
And yet that's where Jesus comes in. As his name states, he saves. And the way he accomplished that was by coming to this earth as a human being, living a perfectly sinless life, and then dying on the cross as our substitute. Bearing God the Father's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. Now, typically, of course, that judgment would come down on us. But in an act of unfathomable love and mercy, Jesus endured it in our place. He then resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. All of that is bound up in the phrase, the Lord Jesus. He's the master of this universe, but also the one who saves all who will come to him. And that's a message that we call the gospel. It's a message that centers around Jesus. And we as Christians are, are called to proclaim that message, just as the Christians there in Antioch were doing. Now, unfortunately, today there are a lot of counterfeits to this gospel message that I believe are important to identify. Because if we're called to, to proclaim the gospel, we've got to understand it, right? And part of understanding what the gospel is, is understanding what the gospel isn't. And so let me very briefly mention four of these counterfeit gospels. First, the morality gospel teaches that we can live in close relationship with God by being moral people. It calls us to good moral behavior without any mention, at least any substantive mention about Jesus or his death on the cross, thereby implying that simply improving our moral behavior is the key to being right with God. Second, the social action gospel calls people to take action in various ways for the good of society. And this may have political overtones or may simply be a call to just do whatever we can do to help the people around us with their earthly needs. And yet here again, the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross to save us from our sin, it's, it's not even mentioned many times, certainly not the focal point. Instead, this social action gospel conveys the idea that earthly needs, rather than spiritual or eternal needs, are supremely important. Also, the focus is on our work for God, rather than God's work for us, which is the focus of the true gospel. Third, uh, a third counterfeit gospel is commonly called the prosperity gospel. And this teaches that God promises all believers earthly health and wealth and prosperity if they'll simply claim those things in faith. The focus isn't on eternal salvation, but rather simply on earthly prosperity. It's also, by its very nature, idolatrous because it exalts the gifts above the giver. God essentially becomes nothing more than a cosmic vending machine a means to an end rather than the end itself. 
And finally, a fourth counterfeit of the gospel is what I'll call the, the self-help gospel. This one's similar to the prosperity gospel, but it focuses not as much on material blessings, but instead on immaterial things, such as an increase in self-esteem and an inward sense of peace and purpose and joy. And even though there are a lot of elements of truth uh, woven into this self-help gospel, since I do believe that following Jesus will produce a greater sense of purpose and peace and joy, this is still a counterfeit to the true gospel because it's focused on the wrong things. It conveys the idea that Jesus came to save us merely from our psychological struggles instead of saving us from our sin. And as I think about these four counterfeits to the gospel, the idea that, that comes to my mind is that those who preach these things and those who embrace these things, they just, they must have never beheld the glory of Jesus. You see, the true gospel is, it's utterly unique in that it shines with the glory of Jesus, the, the glory of his righteousness, the, the glory of his love, the glory of his mercy and grace, the glory of his, his sacrifice. His is a glory that outshines everything else. It's like the sun compared to a light bulb. The glory of Jesus in the, the true gospel outshines every element of these counterfeit gospels just as the sun outshines some kind of artificial light. And I'm convinced that anyone whose eyes have been genuinely opened to behold this all-surpassing glory will never again settle for anything less. There's no glory like that of the biblical Jesus. And no joy like that of knowing the biblical Jesus. And so to summarize, the gospel is the sum and substance of Christianity. And Jesus is the sum and substance of the gospel. The glory of his person. And any church that's lost this gospel message has lost its reason for existence. Thinking again of all the churches in Pittsburgh that have closed their doors in recent years, I suspect that the most common theme, not necessarily the universal theme, but the most common theme among these churches is that they've lost their focus on the gospel. You know, Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. If you lose the gospel, you lose the power. And your days as a church are numbered. Then moving forward, the, the third essential of a thriving church is godly leadership. Look at verses 23 through 26. When he came, that, that is Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So notice especially in these verses how Barnabas is described. It says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And that's a common theme we find throughout Acts and really throughout the rest of the New Testament. When it comes to church leaders, there's always an extremely high level of importance that's placed upon the person's character. Uh, I don't even think it would be an exaggeration to say that that's the most important thing about a leader. And unfortunately, that's a lot different than the prevailing mindset of many in society. In many private companies and government entities, it seems like character is only an issue if it's bad enough to become a public embarrassment. As long as your behavior isn't a public embarrassment to your company or to your political office, you're fine. But in God's eyes and in the church, it's a lot different. And that character is central. You know, it's no accident that the vast majority of the qualifications for a church elder that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 relate to the man's character. Right? Those are, there's two main lists for the qualifications of an elder and, and those two passages. And with only two or three exceptions, every single qualification on those two lists is focused on character. And so whenever a church goes to select church elders, that needs to be their focus. Not personal charisma or business acumen or how long they've been a member of the church, or how much money they give, or even their level of Bible knowledge in isolation from other considerations. Instead, it's the character that needs to be front and center. Now, of course, there are other things that, that we would want to consider as well, such as ministry abilities and, and the level of availability to engage in the significant responsibilities of elder ministry. But checking the box in all of those other considerations can never make up for a deficiency in character. And that's something that uh, our church in particular should probably take careful note of. Um, you know, last week, um, many of you know, we sent off Kevin. I mentioned at the beginning of the service, he was one of our three church elders that we sent him off to do the church restart in Michigan. So you don't have to be a math genius to figure out that that would leave us with two elders, which you know, isn't really very many. And so we are um, looking to appoint one or two additional elders in our church in the next several months. We'll actually be talking about that a lot more next Sunday. I'll preach a sermon that's focused on, on um, just educating everyone about elder ministry in the local church and, and what that is and who's qualified and uh, what the, the office is for. And uh, then we will be giving church members uh, an opportunity to take home a form uh, at the end of that service that they can use to recommend specific candidates for elder ministry. So more about that next week. And uh, hopefully it goes without saying that this is one of the most important decisions that a church can make. 
So hopefully we will approach it prayerfully and biblically by focusing on character as a matter of paramount importance. A church rarely, if ever, rises above the character of its leaders. And so if we want to be a healthy church, and indeed a thriving church, then it's critical that we have leaders whose lives deserve imitation. Then finally, a fourth essential of a thriving church that we see in the church of Antioch is love in action. Love in action. Look at verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, um, excuse me, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So first off, notice who takes the initiative in, to engage in this act of generosity. Verse 29 states that the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. I love that. Right? It's yet another example of so-called ordinary Christians stepping up and taking ownership and, and taking the initiative to engage in meaningful ministry. When they hear about some Christian brothers and sisters who are about to be in need, they take action. And in so doing, they give us a beautiful picture of what Jesus says is supposed to be the defining characteristic of his disciples. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Think about all the things that Jesus could have identified as the defining characteristic of his disciples. Right? He, he could have said that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have meticulous attention to sound doctrine. Or, or if you engage in rigorous spiritual disciplines and religious habits. He could have said that. But instead, he didn't. He, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By the love you have. The love you have for one another. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. You know, I personally have pretty deep convictions about the importance of sound doctrine and how important it is to, to roll up your sleeves and study the Bible for yourself to see what it teaches. And that is important. And I do think, by God's grace, I've been relatively faithful in those things. But this command to love people Man, that is something that challenges me to no end. And the more I grow in my relationship with God, man, the more He reveals to me just how lacking I am so often in love. 
for the people around me. Let me ask you this. What's the primary thing you think our church will become known for in this community? You know, every church has a reputation in the surrounding community. And since we just started meeting in this building, it seems like we have a unique opportunity to build that reputation almost from scratch. So what do you think our church will become known for? What a blessing. And what a uh, confirmation of our faithfulness it would be if we became known for our love. A love that's seen not only in our church's official ministry efforts, but also in the individual lives of the people who comprise this church. Let me tell you, I was so encouraged last week when I heard about a family in the church bringing a meal to another family when that family was going through some pretty significant um, experiences with COVID. And uh, it, was, it was such a blessing. I didn't even know about the need prior to them telling me what they had done. And no one asked them to do that, right? They just saw a need and they did something about it. They took action to, to meet that need and to be a blessing. And so in one sense, it's so ordinary, right? I mean, this is like Christianity 101. And yet, I, I can't tell you how much it warmed my heart to hear that. I tell you, if, if I could hear one or even several stories each week of things like that going on in our church, it would be like a dream come true for me as your pastor. Um, it would be incredible. And more importantly, of course, it would glorify the Lord. The church of Antioch was characterized by love in action. And hopefully our church can be characterized by that as well. So those are the four essentials of a thriving church that we see in Acts 11. Yet as we think about all of these elements, I'd like to emphasize that they're all the result of God being at work. Ultimately, these things aren't human achievements, but rather divine blessings. Notice in verse 21 why it says a great number of people turned to the Lord. What caused the evangelistic ministry of those original Christians to be so fruitful? Well, the hand of the Lord was with them, it says. And then in verse 23, it records Barnabas traveling to Antioch and seeing for himself... What? The grace of God. That's what produced such wonderful results in Antioch. It was the grace of God. And that's what all of the different elements of a thriving church that we've talked about this morning ultimately come back to. We can only be faithful in our missionary calling as we're motivated and empowered by God's grace. Our focus can only remain on the gospel as God graciously keeps it there. Leaders can only live lives of godliness through God's sanctifying grace. And we exhibit love in action because God puts it in our hearts to do so. So all four of these 
characteristics of a thriving church are ultimately manifestations of the grace of God. We might even say that God graciously working in our midst is a fifth characteristic of a thriving church and the one supporting and enabling all the rest. At the end of the day, every thriving church is what it is because of God's gracious work. That's the only way any church can truly thrive and produce genuine fruit that lasts. Just like God breathed life into Adam way back in Genesis 2, he has to breathe life into a church. And by the way, that's why we pray. That's why prayer is central. And not just pray here and there, but, but really devote ourselves to prayer and pursue what we might call a culture of prayer in our church. Friends, that is where the battle for the souls of people in this community is won. That's where the battle for the health of our own church is won. It's won on our knees in prayer. So as I often encourage you to do, I, I do encourage you to attend our Wednesday evening prayer meetings and to make those a priority in your life. Also, I encourage you to make good use of these uh, weekly prayer guide uh, bookmarks, large bookmarks that we, we've handed out a couple of times in the past. If you didn't get one, they're available on the table uh, near the rear doors there as you're exiting. Uh, but this is just a, a very simple prayer guide that gives you something you can pray for regarding our church for every day of the week. You know, for Sunday, praying for the worship service. Monday, for God to help you grow as a Christian in specific ways. Tuesday, for the salvation of specific people in your life. Wednesday, for the church's missionary of the month, right? The Gebert family this month. Thursday, for God's work in your family and in our church, bringing spiritual growth and awakening. Friday, for God to use you in reaching others with the gospel. And Saturday, for different things related to our church's elders. Different things you can pray for for every day of the week. Then on the back, it has a place for you to write in the names of people that you would like to see the Lord save, as well as different notes and needs. So if you think this would be a helpful resource for you in being faithful in prayer, you can certainly pick one up in the back there after the service. And, and, and really, guys, the, the thing I want to emphasize is that if we don't have God's blessing in this church, we don't have anything. So let's pray that God would be at work in our midst and bring about in our church these same characteristics that we see in the church of Antioch.